Thank you very much. Um, I'm here to introduce our speaker uh, for the evening. And I guess, actually, given the theme, the pursuit of peace, it is somewhat appropriate uh, to have the Buster Pearson chair introduce, because, as I recall, he was interested in peace. Um, now, I, I have several things to say. I will be brief. Um, first of all, I'd like to congratulate uh, the organizers of this event uh, in behalf uh, of myself, but also of my department. Um, the focus of Oxford, rightly or wrongly, in the general area of peace and conflict over the last uh, 800 years or so um, has been uh, more on a conflict than resolution, more on war than on peace. Uh, more on states uh, than on people. And uh, looking at my discipline, which is international relations, uh, that focus is quite consistent with what I'm used to, the traditions of international relations. And by the way, I'm not contesting the fact that those traditions embody worthwhile purposes in their own right. But there remains the question, thinking about this conference, of uh, whether the university is uh, contributing as much as it might to the other side of the conversation. What do we have to say about peace, resolution, and people? Uh, so this meeting is a very good thing, uh, not only in itself, but as the beginning, well, not necessarily the beginning, but shall we say an acceleration of uh, a more serious exploration of peace. Uh, now, by this time, you may have the impression that uh, I may have chosen to speak myself rather than to introduce the speaker. Uh, I, I, no, that is not true. I'm not uh, here to declaim. I'm merely here, uh, I should use my honor to be here, to introduce our distinguished, distinguished speaker, Jonathan Powell. Um, what can I say about Jonathan? This will bore him, but it may not bore you. Um, he has an accomplished career as a diplomat, including responsibility in a lot of delicate negotiations related to conflict prevention and the, uh, and, uh, the management of processes towards the resolution of potential conflicts, responsibility in negotiations leading to the handover of uh, Hong Kong. Uh, going back to my, uh, my previous career when I used to do Soviet foreign policy, negotiations in the CSCE context on, uh, context on human rights negotiations with that animal that no longer exists, but soon will again, the Soviet Union. Um, uh, sorry. Um, uh, the reunification of Germany, and uh, then later, not that this is necessarily a conflictual relationship, uh, a major role in UK diplomacy with respect to the United States. But all of those things, while very uh, impressive, and I mean that, are not, I think, why we asked him to be here. Uh, he also served as uh, Chief of Staff to Prime Minister Blair for the full 10 years of uh, uh, Mr. Blair's tenure in office as Prime Minister, which I have to say, looking at it from the outside, has to be a remarkable achievement in its uh, own right. 
Um, but uh, that is uh, also not, in my view, why he is here. Um, I think what uh, brought him to us, uh, in addition to his prior history in Oxford, of course, uh, was his role as principal negotiator on Northern Ireland for the same period, where he guided uh, a seemingly endless and apparently hopeless conflict to, one hopes, an enduring peace embraced by the parties to that process. He has written eloquently uh, of this process in a book. Uh, am I allowed to advertise? Uh, okay. Um, a Great Hatred Little Room, Making Peace in Northern Ireland, published in 2008. I'm sure it is available at Blackwell. Um, in paperback. Okay, there we are. Um, in, in, there we go. In other words, and to cut it short and moving on, he is a distinguished practitioner of the serious pursuit of peace, which is, as you know, the theme of our conference. It is a, a great honor to meet him and to have him with us. And uh, please joining me, join me in welcoming Jonathan Powell. Thank you, thank you very much indeed, and it's a pleasure to be at the college of my uh, former boss, Tony Blair, who is here, and indeed discovered God here, which uh, yeah, he's uh, now pursuing through his Interfaith Foundation. Um, firstly, I've come to praise you for, uh, for this initiative, because I do think it really is worth um, bringing together different disciplines to try and work a conflict resolution. When I joined the Foreign Office three decades ago, we were given absolutely no training at all in negotiation or conflict resolution, and I then spent the greater part of my career trying to do it. Um, we wrote each other lots of papers after the event on negotiating with the Russians or negotiating with the Chinese, um, indeed negotiating with the Americans, which was the worst of all, um, they were the most difficult, but we never really studied it. And I think it's, um, it's interesting that around the world people are trying to bring together disciplines to look at this. If you look at the Harvard Negotiating Project, for example, that's brought together psychologists, lawyers, people in international relations, uh, it's a really very interesting initiative. Um, I'm part of a small group, rather pretentiously called the Global Leadership Council on Conflict Resolution, um, organised by the WF in, in Davos. And we had a rather interesting meeting, which had people you'd expect, like Bertie Ahern and the Secretary of the Nobel Peace Prize Committee, but it had, rather more interestingly, a Japanese academic and a psychologist from New York who specialised in hostage negotiations for the police. And what was interesting to me was how so many of the skills that are required in the sort of thing that I used to do, and still do a bit, um, applied equally if you're trying to get a hostage out of the embrace of a criminal in New York City. It's also interesting because uh, conflict resolution has become uh, privatised like so much else in life. Um, as the UN gets weaker and uh, as conflicts are increasingly intra-country uh, rather than inter-country, there's been a whole growth of private diplomacy bodies that uh, try and deal with conflict resolution. And you have Sonny Gidio out of Rome, of course, that plays such a role in Mozambique and still has roles across the world. Toledo, uh, the Atasari group in Helsinki, 
and there's a group in Geneva called the Humanitarian Dialogue Centre that I work with, Hugo used to work with, which is really a very distinguished, or not distinguished, it's a very effective body, it's not actually at all distinguished, but it's, it's very effective at getting into these conflicts, uh, finding the, the, the insurgent group, getting their confidence and then getting them to talk to governments. And what it does need is some theoretical underpinning, because it's it does, and it could do with some people who did some thinking about the lessons you can learn from some conflicts for, for other conflicts. But my experience, which may be relevant to you or interesting to you, is uh, in Northern Ireland, which I spent 10 years uh, wrestling with. And as I say, the, the paperback's for sale on a, uh, a three-for-two offer, so I, I, I urge you to go and buy it because it's nice and cheap, even students can, can afford it. And one of the, the first um, things that came clear to me dealing with Northern Ireland uh, from an a, a interdisciplinary nature was the importance of history. The place seemed to be drowning in it when I started dealing with Northern Ireland. And I used to joke with Tony that if you ended a meeting with any of the Northern Irish parties after only 30 minutes, you'd have only got to 1689. <laughs> and there'd still be three more centuries of complaints and uh, worries to get through before you got to the current day. But the incident that really brought home to me the importance of history and the potential misunderstanding of it was the first time we had Adams and McGuinness come to number 10 Downing Street. And it was a, it was a big event. Um, there were more TV cameras in the street than there had been uh, when we won the election in May of that year. We tried to put off the meeting as long as we could because it wasn't a very attractive political proposition. And uh, Alistair Campbell, I remember, had sent me a memo saying we should move the Christmas tree because it was just before Christmas because it looked much too festive to have two terrorists in front of the Christmas tree. But we left it there. And Adams and McGuinness came in, and they were, they were, they were nervous. Uh, they walked down the long corridor in number 10 and into the cabinet room at the end. And uh, Adams made a rather feeble joke about the portraits of all the prime ministers who failed to solve the Irish question. And uh, they stood their chairs on the other side of the cabinet table from us, touching the backs of them, the windows over the garden behind them. And McGuinness, to try and break the ice, said, so this was where the damage was done then. And we were aghast, and I sat there and said, yes, the, the, the mortars landed just behind you. The windows came in. My brother happened to be sitting here with John Major at a meeting about Iraq. Pulled John Major under the table, and four rather overweight policemen came in waving their pistols. And he looked absolutely horrified. He said, no, I didn't mean that. And this was where the treaty was signed between Collins and Lloyd George, where all the trouble started. So we were just on a completely different historical page, which is why it's working interdisciplinary. Um, I want to talk a little bit about uh, not the Northern Ireland negotiations themselves so much as whether there are lessons from the Northern Ireland negotiations for other conflict resolution. And the first thing to say, I think, is that the conflict in Northern Ireland was sui generis. The agreement we reached, the Good Friday Agreement, was also sui generis. You couldn't take the Good Friday Agreement and apply it somewhere else. Even the power-sharing uh, device there would not really work in another situation. And the agreement uh, in Northern Ireland, if you look at it carefully, is really an agreement to disagree. The Unionists still want a United Kingdom, and the Nationalists and the Republicans still want a United Ireland. They didn't agree on the substance, they agreed they pursue their aims by political means and not by other means. If you dig away at it a bit, what the real bargain in the end was, was Nationalists and Republicans accepting consent that it was the people of Northern Ireland who decide its future, and the Republicans and Nationalists gaining the ending of the Unionist veto. The orange card could no longer be played to stop change. That Northern Ireland would become a warm house for Catholics, in David Trimble's words in his Nobel uh, Peace Prize speech, rather than a cold house. 
Um, but I do think there are lessons how the sui generis Northern Ireland is for other conflicts, from the cul-de-sacs we went down, the mistakes we made, and from our successes of negotiating. And it's interesting to see people now from as far away as the Philippines or Pakistan going to Northern Ireland to see what lessons they can learn from the experience there, in the same way that people from Northern Ireland went to South Africa to see what they could learn from the South African peace negotiation uh, when they were trying to reach their own peace. And I think it does matter uh, because people tend to get very bound up in their own conflict and they can't see outside it. They get very depressed that they'll never solve it. It's good for them to go and see there are other conflicts that have been resolved and other people who've been in the same sort of tunnel and broken out of it. So I think there are lessons that can be learned from Northern Ireland. <clears throat> um, when I went um, to write my book after I left number 10, I went back through my diaries uh, for the period, and they very kindly allowed me to read all the government papers for the 10 years uh, that we've been in office. And there's one thing that jumped out of the pages to me in terms of the lessons to learn from Northern Ireland, and that was the importance of process. If you have no process at all, you have a vacuum, and the vacuum is soon filled by violence. If you do have a process, there's reason for hope. However slow the process is, people can believe that at some stage there'll be a resolution. So I think, above all else, what you have to do in a conflict is try and get a process in place. Uh, the Middle East is an ex interesting example of exactly this problem. Most of us could probably write on a piece of paper what the outcome of an eventual peace agreement in the Middle East will be, in terms of land, certainly, uh, probably in terms of refugees, and even in terms of Jerusalem itself. So we know the solution. The trouble is there's no process to get us from here to where the solution lies. And Shimon Peres, is always the master of the one-liner, summed it up rather nicely in saying the good news is there's light at the end of the tunnel, and the bad news is there's no tunnel. And that is exactly the problem of the process. My second general lesson, I think, would be what I call the bicycle theory. That is, once you've got a process going, for goodness sake, don't let the thing fall over. Just keep that bicycle rolling along. However slow it is, however painful it is, always keep the bicycle moving. Um, that doesn't mean you have to uh, absorb political pain as you go along. For us, the release of the terrorist prisoners in Northern Ireland was a very painful thing to do. We were highly criticised for it by the Conservative Party and, of course, by the Unionists in Northern Ireland. But I know that if we hadn't done it, the peace process would have unravelled and collapsed. We had to absorb that pain. Later on, and very uh, personally for me, was the Northern Bank robbery in 2004. I'd actually arrived in uh, Belfast that morning for talks of Adams and McGuinness um, in the Clonard Monastery. I got off the plane, a Northern Ireland office official took me to one side and said that the biggest ever bank robbery in British history had happened. The dogs on the street knew it was the IRA that had done it. Uh, we couldn't tell anyone because the police hadn't announced it and wouldn't announce it until later. And I personally felt like getting back on the plane and going straight back to London. But I decided that actually the only sensible thing to do was to carry on with the talks, to proceed, not to let that bicycle stop. So you have to put aside your personal concerns, your personal frustrations, and keep that bicycle moving. My third lesson, I think, is um, about breakthrough agreements. Uh, you get a breakthrough agreement, like the Good Friday Agreement, you're exhausted with three days and nights and no sleep. Uh, you have a feeling of euphoria, you finally got to an agreement, and you leave. And the danger is that no one does anything, and that agreement collapses. Because agreements... Um, aren't the answer to the problem. Agreement is a piece of paper. It doesn't actually build the trust between unreconciled peoples. 
the real work should actually start once you've got a breakthrough agreement. People shouldn't go away and desert it and leave it alone. Because nine years after Good Friday Agreement, until we got the parties into government together in Northern Ireland. And you can see the same sort of thing happening, for example, with Oslo. In Oslo, you had a breakthrough on the Middle East. Everyone had euphoria. Palestinians were celebrating on the street. But no one made any effort to sell it to the Israeli people, try and implement it. Everyone gave up at that stage. And it soon unraveled and went back into Intifada. Uh, and the rest is history. You see the same also in Spain, actually. With the Spanish <coughs> uh, ceasefire, with ETA, about uh, five years ago, four, four years ago now. Um, everything looked fantastic. It was going to work. But having got to the agreement, uh, having the Spanish Prime Minister having made his statement, no one did anything. ETA began to doubt that it was really going to be enforced. You had the T2 bomb and the thing began to unravel again. So for me, the important thing to understand is peace is not some event, it's not a piece of paper, it's a process, and it takes time to build that trust uh, to make it really work. There are lots of lessons, uh, I think, in terms of just techniques of managing conflict resolution. Um, in Northern Ireland, we had to resort to what I would call constructive ambiguity. That is where you can't make an agreement quite reach, where the two sides are too far apart to bridge that gap. And you come up with words that mean one thing to one side and another thing to another, which we did on decommissioning, for example. We put in words that meant a different thing to the Unionists than to the Republicans. Uh, that was because we could have sat there for another 10 years and they still wouldn't have agreed on that point. But the trouble with constructive ambiguity is that it begins to unravel. People begin to question it. People begin to say, but we thought we'd agreed to X or Y. And we tried from 1998 right through to 2003 to make this thing work on the basis of constructive ambiguity. And we lost unionist support in the course of it. Unionist support for the agreement fell from just over half to less than a third. And in the end, we decided we had to force the issue. We couldn't let that constructive ambiguity go on any longer. And Tony Blair went to make a speech at the Belfast Harbour Commissioner's Office in which he uh, called on the IRA for acts of completion. He said they had to choose between the armor life and the ballot box. You couldn't have the ambiguity anymore. We were nervous because we were worried even at that stage that the IRA would go back to violence, uh, that this would force them out of the peace process. Uh, we sat, I sat nervously by my telephone and about three days later Adams called me, said he thought it was a good speech, and would I draft a reply for him, which struck me as a bit lazy. But the, um, <laughs> so I did in my best Republican speak and I was absolutely amazed when he delivered it word for word including saying he could envisage the end of the IRA. But actually, it was a very brave and wise thing of him to do, because what he managed to do by responding in that way is to uh, get over that difficult moment where you have to make, take the ambiguity out of it, where the ambiguity has become destructive, uh, and make the thing uh, clear. There's a similar problem in Cyprus, incidentally, in the last negotiation in terms of constructive ambiguity that got very damaging indeed. Uh, technically, also, the use of deadlines can be crucial. Um, one of the mistakes that John Major made, and by the way, John Major deserves considerable credit for uh, the effort he put into the Northern Ireland peace process. When the IRA tried to kill him only two months into his prime ministership, he really did, for no political gain, make a big effort. But I think he made a mistake in terms of trying to drag the thing out. <coughs> he would never quite get the peace process going after the ceasefire. And the IRA began to believe there was never going to be a process in which they could join. So we very deliberately, when we came in in 97, set a clear deadline <coughs> after a ceasefire by which they could enter into the talks. And we set a very clear um, deadline 
for the end of the talks. We said the talks would last one year from when we'd come into power, so they'd be concluded by Easter 98. And as you might imagine, as we came closer and closer to Easter 98 and there was no agreement, people called on us to break the deadline, to give up on the deadline. And we thought very hard about it. We decided you had to insist on the deadline or the talks would just go on forever. You'd lose the Republicans, they would feel they were being messed around forever. You had to force the issue and make people reach agreement. And it worked in that case because they came to an agreement because of the deadline. We then tried to use deadlines repeatedly afterwards from 99 onwards. And as we sailed through each of the deadlines without achieving anything, we lost all credibility. But we came back to it again in 2006, the St Andrews Agreement. We actually, to try and make people believe we really would drive that car at the wall, we passed a law that made it clear everything would collapse on a certain date in November unless there'd be an agreement. And they actually believed us again about the deadline. And it worked to uh, bring about a, an agreement. Um, <coughs> the unionists in particular used to complain like mad about what we call, or they called, forcing house talks. We took them on the tour of pretty much all of the stately homes of England, Wales and uh, Scotland to try and take them away from their constituencies and force them to focus on reaching an agreement. And it can work quite effectively if you make them... Uh, what they always do when they come to these talks is they come and they actually uh, pull back from hopeful positions they've taken before. So, for example, when they came to Western Park or they came to Leeds Castle, they pulled back from their uh, quite forward positions that looked quite close to each other as we went into the talks. But once you've got them in that building, you can build a momentum, you can build a sort of psychology that gets people into trying to reach agreement. <coughs> um, and it's really uh, worth trying to do it. The most successful example, I guess, was George Mitchell, who took uh, the parties in 99 after the agreement had happened, hadn't been enforced, he took them to Winfield House, the American ambassador's residence in London, locked them up there with none of their supporters, just the leaders, and managed to get them to, to, into an agreement. So that trick of taking people away is worth, worth trying. A lot of what we tried to do in Northern Ireland was what I would call choreography or sequencing. Um, neither side wanted to go first. The uh, unionists didn't want to go into government with the IRA, still existing, with the Republicans having an army behind them. The Republicans didn't want to give up their card of having the IRA, unless they were sure the Unionists were going to share power, and neither trusted the other to go first. So we tried to break the process down into a series of small steps, so they could build confidence by one side moving a little bit, and the next side moving, and so on. It, it sometimes worked, but we had one disastrous experience in uh, 2003, towards the end of David Trimble's time, and partly resulting in the end of David Trimble's time, where we built a complicated choreography, <coughs> which was blown apart by the IRA taking John de Chastelin, the Canadian um, head of the IICD, of the, the body that verified decommissioning, basically taking him hostage for a day and not releasing him. Um, once we got him back, the whole choreography was supposed to start, and we started our bit by announcing there would be elections. Uh, we got de Chastelin up to Hillsborough, the... the stately home in which the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland resides, and he told us he couldn't say anything about decommissioning. He couldn't say what weapons had been decommissioned in any shape or form. And the whole thing had relied on him being clear about it so David Trimble could move forward. And we had a press conference, which I watched live with David Trimble screaming at me on the telephone, particularly when John de Sastin, when asked if he could say anything about the weapons, said, well, he supposed he could say there were no tanks or heavy artillery, <laughs> which wasn't enormously helpful at the time. Um, Another trick that works, or trick is the wrong way of putting it, another tool that works quite well 
is embarrassment. If you can try and make uh, either side feel they'll be blamed if they walk out of the talks. In Northern Ireland, neither side wanted to lead. They always wanted the other side to be the one that broke, broke the thing. And they make it as difficult as possible for the other side so they might walk out. They never want to walk out themselves. And we would always try and make them believe that we would blame them if they did walk out. In fact, we never did blame either side because you always need to pick the process up again after you um, failed on that occasion. So we never actually pointed the finger at either side the whole way through the nine years. But even so, that figure of um, <coughs> that threat of pointing the finger at them could be quite effective. There is one occasion when it went slightly wrong, when I remember John Major had um, Ian Paisley in the cabinet room with him. John Major used to work in the cabinet room in number 10 rather than in an office. And Ian Paisley came to see him and was particularly difficult and particularly um, insulting. John Major got so angry that he walked out of the meeting. Now, that's a mistake, because if you walk out of your own office and Ian Paisley refuses to leave, you can't get back in. So never walk out of your own office if you're in a meeting at all possible. I, I, I could go on so endlessly on this, but just let me just end on one point of, of, of technique about ingenuity. It sometimes requires um, almost ludicrous degrees of ingenuity to resolve problems. The very last stages of the peace process involved trying to get Paisley and uh, Adams to agree to meet, to have a meeting that was going to be televised. And we got them to agree to the principle, then we had to negotiate how long it would be, what they would say. And the very last issue was where they would sit. <coughs> um, Unionists wanted to sit opposite Sinn Féin, so they looked like combatants and enemies. And the Sinn Féin wanted Adams to sit next to Ian Paisley, so they looked like colleagues. And we couldn't get them to agree. So what we did in the end was we designed a special table that was diamond-shaped, so they could sit <laughs> next to each other and opposite each other at the same time. <laughs> so in conflict resolution, you have to be prepared even to be a carpenter to get things to happen. Um, one of the things I learned from the Northern Ireland peace process, and I've seen elsewhere in terms of conflict resolution, is the danger of setting preconditions. Um, John Major, again, made a mistake in, that, in these terms with decommissioning in, uh, after the ceasefire. I can see exactly why he did it. He wanted, uh, he couldn't, he felt, negotiate with a temporary ceasefire. He felt he had to have a permanent end to violence, and he wanted the IRA to say that violence was over for good. They wouldn't do that. So as a surrogate for that, he looked to them to uh, begin decommissioning their weapons. And first he demanded they decommission all their weapons before they'd be allowed into talks. And naturally, being a terrorist movement in those circumstances, dictated to in public, you say, no, you certainly are not going to decommission your weapons. He then uh, reduced that to um, decommissioning most of their weapons before they could come into talks. They wouldn't agree to that. He then reduced it in what was called the Washington Fall, when... Uh, the Secretary of State went to, to, to Washington to token decommissioning, and they wouldn't agree to that. But what he left us with was a problem that we spent uh, the best part of 10 years trying to wake our, work our way around, which didn't need to be a problem. Decommissioning gives you nothing, if you think about it. It's terrorists could easily go and buy new weapons as soon as they get rid of them. It's their intentions you're trying to decommission, not their weapon. And that's why DDR happens in most instances at the end of the process rather than the beginning. But this problem of, of preconditions, I think, is equally um, obvious in the Middle East. Uh, if you think of Hamas, here the West, or the Quartet, is demanding uh, what strikes me as a fairly reasonable precondition, which is they give up violence. They should be prepared to sign up to something like the Mitchell Principles of Nonviolence in Northern Ireland. What seems less reasonable to me is to demand that they sign up for um, acceptance of the State of Israel. That would be rather like having asked the IRA to sign up to accepting the existence of a separate state in Northern Ireland, 
separate from the rest of Ireland, before the process began rather than as part of the process. So it has been incredibly careful on the government side, as much as on uh, the other side, for setting preconditions. They can leave you in a place where you simply can't get out of the, the bind you've created for yourself. International involvement is, in my view, uh, a crucial uh, part of trying to solve intra-state difficulties. Uh, we in Britain refused to allow international role in Northern Ireland for decades and decades. We kept on rejecting any UN role when that was suggested. You see the same thing, of course, with India in the case of Kashmir. I always think that's a mistake. I don't see what you lose by having international involvement. It doesn't actually surrender any of your sovereignty or limit any of your options. Having had George Mitchell as a facilitator was actually crucial. Having someone that both sides trusted uh, in the way they wouldn't have trusted the British government as a facilitator uh, really helped to bring about uh, peace, as I hope it will in the Middle East. But you can also have the role uh, of international figures as sort of referees. We had the International Commission on Decommissioning, but we also had the International Monitoring Commission, monitoring the ending of terrorist activity by the IRA and by the loyalist paramilitaries, and also the steps taken by the British Army to uh, reduce its presence in Northern Ireland. So that sort of uh, guarantor can be really, really very useful indeed. We also had earlier Atasari, Mati Atasari, who came along with Sora Ramaphosa to inspect the weapons dumps when we couldn't quite get to decommissioning who afterwards told us some wonderful stories about uh, hospitality of the IRA as they looked after them, driving them around in blacked-out vans in the Republic, including providing them with pyjamas and toothpaste in the places they were kept. And particularly in the case of Matos Asari, I don't know if you've ever seen Matos Asari, he's absolutely built like a proverbial outhouse, and he, uh, they provided him with overalls, but they hadn't quite got the dimensions right, and Matos Asari <laughs> tried to squeeze him through the overalls to climb into various holes around the, um, around the Republic. Um, there's also the role of the facilitator and the strong facilitator. In the case of Northern Ireland, we were a strong facilitator. We regarded ourselves as neutral from the speech by Peter Brook in 91 onwards, where he said Britain had no selfish strategic or economic interest in Northern Ireland. We were happy to live what both sides could accept themselves. We had no particular direction we wanted the peace negotiations to go in. But we could control what happened economically and what happened in the security terms. So we were a strong facilitator. We could push things in a particular direction. Um, I remember a conversation between Tony Blair and George Bush in Hillsborough just after the Iraq invasion where they spent a long time standing at the gates of the flower garden in Hillsborough talking about the Middle East. And afterwards, George Bush gave a press conference in which he said he would devote as much time and as much effort to solving the Middle East as Tony Blair had to Northern Ireland. And that's actually what's going to be required in the Middle East is an American president who can be a strong facilitator because they can control what happens in terms of security and the economy. It can deliver both sides, and only that kind of uh, role will ever actually crack the bottom of the Middle East, in my view. Um, one thing we suffered from endlessly, and again I've seen this across the world in other conflicts, is what I'd call zero-sum politics. That if one side comes out of a negotiation smiling, whatever the substantial nature of it, the other side thinks it's lost. And the Republicans are much cleverer coming out of negotiations smiling, and unions would always feel that they'd lost. One of the bizarre things in Northern Ireland was the uh, first ceasefire in 94, where it was the Republicans driving around West Belfast as if they won a football game, honking on their horns and waving scarves, and the Unionists who went into a terminal depression, even though what they'd always wanted had happened, there was a ceasefire in place. Um, that, that Getting through that zero-sum politics is crucially important. One of the interesting things in Northern Ireland was that the IRA did never um, 
surrendered to the Brits and never surrendered to the Unionists. When they actually did their decommissioning in the end, when they actually stood down, it was in response to a speech by Gerry Adams. It was much easier for them to do it in their own terms to their own leader than it was to uh, look as if you'd done it in any way as a surrender to others. I don't think we'd ever been able to sell the agreement if the Republicans hadn't finally learned that it wasn't all that clever actually to look like they'd won in every negotiation. You're only going to get a lasting peace, one that people can live with, if both sides feel that they've been winners. You have to have both sides think about the constituency of the other and how they're going to sell it to that constituency. And to their credit, Adams and McGuinness did think about that with the DUP and did think about how they could go about making it easier for the DUP to claim that they too had won in the peace negotiation. My penultimate point, because you must be getting pretty fed up by now, but the, um, I think one of the most important things I learned from that negotiation, and again others I've been peripherally involved in since, is that you'll only ever get a lasting peace if both sides believe they can't win militarily. In Northern Ireland, the British Army had a fairly disastrous start with Bloody Sunday, with uh, uh, internment, um, the siege of West Belfast. They got off to a bad start, but they discovered pretty early on that the only way that this could be won would be politically. They understood that they could keep security at a sufficient level indefinitely. They could stop the IRA breaking out forever but they could never actually defeat the IRA altogether. They'd never be able to suppress it. Um, and they understood there had to be a political solution. They understood you had to win hearts and minds to make the thing work. So by about the early 80s, they were actually in advance of the politicians in seeing the need to have a political solution. The IRA had a similar sort of apotheosis uh, along the way in uh, about the mid-80s. Adams and McGuinness had both joined the Provisionals at a very young age. But by the mid-80s, they were no longer a fighting age. They could see their nephews and nieces, sons, daughters, getting arrested, being killed. They could see this could go on further. They knew they couldn't be defeated, but they knew they could never win. They'd never be able to drive the Brits out by violence. And they too started trying to reach out for a political solution. They started to talk to John Hume. There were a series of sort of matching speeches by British Secretaries of State and Adams and McGuinness. <coughs> so both sides came to the conclusion they couldn't win militarily. They had to find a political solution, and then you have a durable uh, basis on which to try and pursue peace. Unfortunately, somewhere like Sri Lanka, that isn't the case. Sri Lanka, we had the ceasefire. It looked as if we had a lasting peace. Both sides, finally, after the fighting, were reconciled to looking for a political solution. And then it fell apart because one side decided they could win militarily under pressure from the armed forces and from the defence uh, minister. They believed they could win. Now, they are going to win in terms of territory. They will very soon taken all the territory in Sri Lanka, but they'll have solved precisely nothing, because the problem will come back and haunt them as a terrorist campaign, not as a military campaign, which will in many ways be bloodier and more horrible. Uh, if they had any sense, what they would do is immediately announce uh, a political solution from a position of strength and try and build peace from that position, but I fear that they won't. If you have one side thinking you can win militarily, you won't get to a lasting peace. <coughs> Finally, um, I guess the biggest lesson I learned, not necessarily from negotiations, funnily enough, because I'm not sure I understood this in government, but from writing my book and thinking about it a bit more, is the need to talk to your enemies. I didn't find it all that easy to talk to Republicans when we were in government. My uh, father had been shot out by the IRA in 1940. Uh, my brother, Charles, who'd worked for Mrs Thatcher, had been on a death list for eight years for the IRA. I didn't shake Adams and McGuinness's hands the first time when I met them, which is a bit pathetic, but it was important to me at the time. 
So I didn't understand the importance of talking to my enemies. On the other hand, when I got a call from Martin McGuinness in September uh, 1997, he asked me to come to Derry, not to tell anyone I'd gone there, and uh, particularly not to tell the security authorities. So I got on a plane and got a taxi to Derry, and I stood on a street corner until a couple of guys with shaved heads came up to me and said, Martin sent us, and bundled me in the back of a black cab, and drove me round and round in circles in Derry, so I was completely confused. Um, eventually I got outside the throne, I, I got out of the cab at a, a housing estate, knocked on a door, and there was Martin McGuinness with a broken leg inside, making jokes about kneecapping. And uh, it wasn't a particularly important meeting, we didn't break through on anything. But I then had a series of similar meetings in houses dotted around West Belfast and in Derry. And I think the importance of that sort of approach is to try and build trust, to go to someone else's territory where they can think aloud, if you want, about what they want to do, rather than to force them to come to your territory or have a formal negotiation. There was a particular uh, issue where we had to find a way, uh, fairly early on in um, 2000, I guess it was, uh, on decommissioning. We weren't going to get decommissioning, but we wanted to have um, some progress. And I talked to a couple of generals who served in Bosnia and in Kosovo, and they'd suggested the idea of sealing the dumps and monitoring the dumps. So I went to one of these houses in West Belfast and suggested it to Adams and McGuinness, and they immediately said it was completely unacceptable, and then asked questions for an hour or so. And about uh, three weeks later, I went to a formal meeting, and they proposed the idea to us as their way forward on the subject. So you can actually find a way of building, building trust in those circumstances. Of course, it only goes so far in building trust. I remember one particular um, session with Adams and McGuinness in um, the Clonard Monastery in West Belfast, where uh, I was worried about catching the last plane. The monks had very kindly agreed to feed us, and we were in the refectory having dinner, and I was sitting, eating. And I was trying to check my watch to see if I was going to be too late for the plane. I kept being like this. And the minute hand had come loose and was swinging around until what the time was. And Martin McGuinness said to me, well, I have a watchman at the end of my street, let me take that and I'll get it fixed for you. And I said, honestly, really, it'll be okay, don't, don't worry, I'll, I'll, I'll look after it. He said, no, no, I insist. He took my watch away. I very kindly gave it back to me at Leeds Castle when we met for negotiations fixed. And I, of course, had to give it to the security authorities to have it checked for bugs and trackers, <laughs> who immediately then broke the minute hand and I had to <laughs> So there are limits to, to, to how far you can go in building trust. But the thing I think I learned in writing the book was um, I hadn't really understood the, the length and depth of the British government's dialogue with the IRA. The British government had, had a channel to the IRA from 1974 onwards. It had a, a sort of channel before, but a, a channel that was continuous from 1974 onwards through an intelligence agent and a quite brave man called Brendan Duff, Duffy, who uh, lived in Derry and actually risked his life many times to try and keep the, the link open. And if that link, that link it, it had played an important role in certain cases, the ceasefire in 74. Uh, the end of the first hunger strike in 1980, but it had been dormant for long periods too. But if it hadn't existed in 1993-1994, it's hard to see how you'd have got to the ceasefire. If you hadn't been talking to the IRA privately, um, I don't see how, when the Warrington bomb was going off, for example, when they were exchanging messages, if they'd been talking formally, a British government could possibly have talked to them when two young children were blown to pieces. So it provided the way in which the British government could reassure Republicans, that if they gave up violence, they would be able to find a political track on the way forward, even though violence was still going on. The British government couldn't have done that publicly in talks. It could only do it secretly. 
Um, and the IRA wouldn't have given up violence if they hadn't had that way of communicating with the British government. So you have to have that kind of link if you're going to find a way um, uh, out of the violence in the end and reassure the terrorist group that there is a political perspective for it, a political way forward. And the lesson I concluded from that was really you do need to find a way of talking to Hamas, to the Taliban, and even actually, in my view, to Al-Qaeda. Now, Hamas, I, I talked about what I thought the conditions would be for that. The Taliban, it seems bizarre to me, we're prepared to talk to the Taliban tactically, in terms of local commanders, but we're not prepared to talk to them strategically. It seems to me you'll only find a solution in Afghanistan if you are prepared to find a way of talking to them, trying to express their political demands in a coherent way, and find a political role for them. They'll simply not disappear uh, if you just try and deal with them in a military way. Al-Qaeda, I miss, is a little bit harder. First, you'd have to find Osama bin Laden. Then he'd have to want to talk to you. And then you'd have to actually have some demands that you could possibly relate to the real world, which would be difficult. But even in that case, actually, I think having some sort of link that at some stage when they get to coherent demands provides a way out uh, is the only way that you can seriously try and tackle peace. This approach gets misunderstood quite a lot. Uh, George Bush made a speech in Israel in uh, last year of his presidency in which he talked about appeasement and talking to your enemies, which strikes me as a sort of pretty big misunderstanding of appeasement because... The mistake that Chamberlain made was not in talking to Hitler. Talking to Hitler was a very good idea. The mistake was thinking that if you allowed him chunks of the Czech Republic or Czechoslovakia as it then was, you would somehow buy him off. You don't buy off terrorists, you don't give in to terrorists, but you do talk to them. Talking to them is not appeasement. Talking to them is trying to find a solution. And I conclude with the, the words of Hugh Ward about nine months ago now, the Chief Constable in Northern Ireland, who said accurately that there is no way in history that a terrorist problem has been policed out it only actually can ever be concluded by political means. Thank you very much.